Good morning, FCBC Walnut family and friends. This is the last Sunday of the month. This is when we normally gather together to partake of the Lord's Supper, to remember what Jesus did for us on the cross in ushering the new covenant with his blood, saving us, redeeming us, and making us into a part of God's family. And so if you have your bread and cup in front of you, you're ready to go. If you need to take this time right now to go and prepare it, please go ahead. Pastor Albert will lead us shortly. Along the way, if you are worshiping on Facebook Premiere, take this time to say hello to each other, to like each other's comments, and just to greet one another. We want to seize every opportunity that we have to interact, especially as we are now the church scattered. I come this morning with a heavy heart because of the events of this week. George Floyd was killed this week in an act of injustice, and my heart breaks. It breaks so much that I've been unable and uninterested in even partaking and watching the video, knowing what it recorded and knowing that he was helpless and having his life taken away from him. There is so much injustice in this world. And while we know that there are good cops and good people out there, we also know that there are sinful and racist people out there. All this is a product of the fall. And right now, our nation is torn up yet again. And it happens all too frequently. This is a time when we're reminded of Jesus' beatitude in Matthew 5.10, where he says, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Righteousness' sake doesn't mean that somebody did nothing wrong, but in this case, in which George Floyd was killed innocently, he did do nothing wrong to earn and deserve this. And so we come, recognizing that any answer, any solution, and any protest that we put forth comes short of the blessing and the hope and the assurance that comes from trusting in Jesus and awaiting the kingdom of heaven. So may our hearts continue to break. May we learn more. May we pray more. And may we be salt and light in how we encourage and exhort and lift up one another especially fellow image bearers of God, as we all are. May we see one another the way that God sees us in our hearts, in our character. And even then, he sent Jesus to die for sinners, knowing that we cannot save ourselves or ever obey him perfectly. May we put all of our hopes in eternity and in the return of Jesus and in the new heavens and the new earth forever, not expecting perfection now, but... As we are here, may we be the hands and feet that exhibit the perfect love of God in our homes, in our church, and in our neighbor. Even though we are the church scattered, and maybe we're just not as connected, all of the things that are happening around us, we're aware of. And so may we be a part of the solution, even if we don't know what we should do. With that, I have a few announcements. All of them could be found in a digital bulletin. I encourage you to take the time to read it in your own so that you're familiar with what's going on in our church. But here's a few announcements for your consideration. The first is this past week's Red Cross Blood Drive. Praise God for the success that it was. We had a full house in terms of registration and we had 42 completed donations. It was a joy to host the crew in the MAC to see it being used as a place in which life was being given to those who had need. 
praise God for his provision, and we look forward to future opportunities to bless our community in that way. Along the way, if you have any needs or if you have any donations, if you want to give and support the relief team as we continue to serve to provide for the needs of this church, and we're considering how we can go outside our four walls to bless the community, the information is in the digital bulletin. Please email relief at fcbcwalnut.org. Finally, I want us to consider how we can be in this together as our church prepares to reopen. The reopening task force is meeting diligently and a survey has been sent out to you this week. Please fill it out as soon as you can. The deadline is Friday, but if you send it in sooner, it would help the team to be able to have more data to work with earlier. Groups leaders, please invite your members to fill it out. Everyone watching, the link is in a digital bulletin. Please fill it out so that the pastoral staff and the task force can have all the information that is helpful for the right decisions and the right steps to be made. You know, as things are happening every single day, even as the sermons were being recorded this Wednesday by Pastor Hanley, there has been many updates since then. So please be prayerful for how our leaders are taking us through this, because we want to come back as a church gathered in unity and in wisdom and with God's blessing, taking the right steps, but also operating out of sincere faith and trust in God's hand and not in our own plans. So please join us in this endeavor. And if you have any questions, one of the best places to come to is Wednesday nights at our prayer meeting. A lot gets talked about there as we encourage and build each other up and are reminded of God's faithfulness. So the links are in your digital bulletin at where you can attend our prayer meetings, and we hope to see you there. Let me pray for us, and then Pastor Albert will lead us in a Lord's Supper, as well as Pastor Hanley will be preaching from Ezra 3. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, for today. And God, we come before you this weekend reminded of our deep need for the redeeming work of your Son in our lives. God, for the forgiveness of sin, for the reconciliation with you and with each other. Lord, we are so broken. We are so in need of your help. Father, may you work in our nation in our communities, in our hearts, right now, Father, going forward, Lord, so that we could seek you in your righteousness above all things. We pray, Lord, that you would bring about justice quickly to those that were responsible and involved in the death of George Floyd. We also pray, Father, for those who are hurting, whether they're the victims of looting, whether they're just angry and they're not sure what to do, Lord, whether they have also suffered incidents and memories of racism. We pray, Father, that you would be the comfort and the encouragement for all of our hearts collectively. But we also pray, Father, even as we hope and look to you for justice, Father, that more than that, that we would have your presence. Lord, we're reminded by Jesus that the blessing that we have that is eternal and lasting is ultimately found in a relationship with you and in obedience to you and a belonging in your kingdom, which is to come. So God, may we do what is right and just and merciful every day, but may we ultimately 
put our broken hearts in your hands and trust in your perfect healing and in your perfect justice to be exacted in your perfect timing. So we thank you, Lord, for your goodness and faithfulness to us. Remind us, Father, of your work on the cross through your Son, Jesus, through the Lord's Supper. And also, Father, soften our hearts to receive the preaching of your word. May we respond to you today like never before, even from our homes or from our phones. God, may we realize now more than ever that what we're about to hear in the Bible we're about to read and engage with and the truths that anchor your people are truly what the world needs right now more than ever. In Christ's holy name I pray. Amen. Good morning, church. As we come together to observe the Holy Communion uh, on a monthly basis, though online, but our hearts are joined together in unity because we are all coming together to remember our Lord who accomplished salvation. And through the elements that we will partake today, the bread and the cup symbolizing his body for us, given to us, and his blood shed for us, uh, we come together to give thanks to him. Let me read to you that familiar passage that we are so uh, accustomed to read during the Holy Communion. Uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 23 to 26. For I received from the Lord, which I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. You know, it sounds redundant. It sounds repetitious. But we know better that when we come together, reciting, reading the same scriptures, but we come together to reaffirm to reaffirm the tradition that come from Jesus for us to observe this ordinance to remember him, which he instructed us to do so. But when we come together, even though reading the same scriptures, it doesn't mean that we are exactly the same. Even though we come together to observe the same ordinance, to hear the same message, to know that it is from the Lord. But you know what? When we come together, it may trigger in your heart uh, a remembrance of God's salvation, and that brings a thankful heart. It may trigger us in your heart and rekindle our love for Jesus Christ. And even as we come together, we are reminded that we are disciples and followers of Jesus Christ. So even though we read the same scriptures and go through the same ritual and ordinance, but you know what? For each one of us, God speaks to us in a very unique and special way. So let's come together to pray as the Bible instructs us to, to uh, ask the Spirit to examine our hearts and make sure that we are cleansed, uh, we have confessed our sins as we partake together. Let's pray. Would you just confess your sins before God and now close in prayer and get ready for the communion. Lord Jesus, we are so thankful as we come to observe the communion together. 
Because as we come to the cross of Jesus, we know that we are on level ground. We are sinners saved by grace. And we can only come to Jesus through Christ alone, by grace alone, by faith alone. And we are so grateful that through Jesus Christ, we are connected as a body of Christ, though different parts, but we are the same body of Christ. Though scattered in respective homes, but we are together body of Christ. So we come together to ask you to forgive us of our sins that we have just confessed, cleanses, that when we come together to observe this communion, you will make this time special and meaningful and bless us as we come together to remember you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let me just remind you that communion is for baptized born-again Christians. Uh, if you have not been baptized, uh, you can observe uh, joining us in your heart, in your spirit, and observe and remember the Lord together with us. So for those who are staying at home, uh, observing it together with us, you have prepared your elements. You can take the cups and you can take the uh, bread in your hand and let's observe the Lord together. The Bible says, on the night he was betrayed, he took bread and said, this is my body for you. Eat in remembrance of me. Let's eat together to remember the Lord. And after the supper, he took cup and said, This is the cup of my covenant for the forgiveness of sins. Drink in remembrance of me. Let's remember the Lord by drinking together. I'm going to invite you to recite the Lord's Prayer together. It's our prayer to our Lord Jesus. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For thy is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Let's prepare our hearts to receive the Lord's message for us today. God be with you. Good morning, FCBC Walnut. We are continuing our series through the book of Ezra, and the title of this morning's message is Restoring Corporate Worship. Restoring Corporate Worship. And we are in Ezra chapter 3, verses 1 to 6 today. Basically, in Ezra chapter 3, verses 1 to 6, you see the Israelites who have returned from Babylonian exile. They do two things. They build the altar, and they celebrate the festivals that were laid out in the Law of Moses, namely the Festival of Booths or the Feast of Tabernacles. It's, it's labeled differently de depending on where you look in the Old Testament. But my aim today is simple. My aim today is to show us how this New Testament passage applies to us or this Old Testament passage. My aim today is to show how this Old Testament passage here in Ezra 3 applies to us as New Testament Christians. And if you're not yet a Christian today, then what we want to see today is how the Jewish people maintain their relationship with God and how their relationship with God was further developed through their spiritual community as God's people and how we today in our day, it's, it's different where we enter into a relationship with God through Jesus Christ, Israel's Messiah, and Jesus' people, the church, 
help us to further our development as Christians and Christ followers. Here's a thought I want to begin with to help you understand why some of these Israelites would come back from exile to Jerusalem in the first place. You have to remember that in Babylon, these Israelites had been there for a long time, for decades, and they were settled there. Some of them were comfortable. To leave Babylon and come back to Jerusalem, they would be coming back as refugees. There were already people inhabiting Jerusalem who wouldn't take it so well that Cyrus, the Persian emperor, declared that these refugees, if you will, could come back home. So I want you to think about that, meaning, yes, every single Israelite who returned from exile, yes, they are individuals, yes, they are unique people, but if you were to ask the Israelites in Ezra's day, hey, why are you back? Why did you come back to Jerusalem? What made you come back? It's very unlikely that they would say, oh, I'm leaving this settled life in Babylon to explore new personal opportunities in Jerusalem. I'm going there to explore business opportunities or to study. This is very different from how we think today. Meaning, if you were to ask them, who are you and why are you back? They would point to their corporate identity as the people of God. They would say, they would say, We're back in the land that God promised to our forefathers. We are back in the place where God gathered us and where we are to worship him. We're back in the place where God is bringing us back from exile because we are his chosen people. We are the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. This is our God-given land, and we are his covenant people, and we're returning to the place where we are going to keep covenant with him through corporate worship. You see, much of Israel's identity was revolved around their corporate worship of Yahweh. And even though they could individually maintain a relationship with God in terms of their spiritual faith, and we know that that was possible, that there was something transformative, something unique, and something very special that God had ordained for them, something that happens when they gathered corporately in unison as one body in God's place under God's word. And you're going to see that throughout Ezra. So here's how it's very different. And I think it's important for us to understand this because we are reading Ezra as New Testament Christians and with a Western mindset. Charles Taylor has written about the making of the modern identity in the early 1990s. And more recently, pastor and author Tim Keller has developed this idea of how individualized we see identity here in the Western world. And Keller has said something along the lines of, think what the world is telling you today about your identity. And I'm going to develop or I'm going to adapt some of some of what uh, Keller has put out. But the modern world says about your identity, the modern world says, look within yourself and discover who you really are. And the younger you are, the more you're going to hear this narrative. And the narrative today is you be who you feel you should be. No one outside of you should tell you who you are. Not God, not your heritage, not your community, not your family. Gender, sexuality, morality, physical appearance. You want to change it? You want to determine it? You go look within yourself. Search deep. And you will find who you are. That's what the world tells you. And then they tell you, then you come out 
and say, hey world, this is who I am. I've discovered who I am and everyone has to affirm me in the name of tolerance. And then you spend your entire world looking for communities, people, and groups who will affirm your identity. And Tim Keller says, this is not freedom, this is slavery. This is slavery because you're, in, you're enslaved to spending your life needing people to affirm who you think that you are. And we have the gospel, which is the good news that Christ frees us from this slavery by giving us a true identity. He, he unites us to Christ. He reminds us that we're part of a bigger people and a bigger story. And yes, we realize that we are unique, that we were created in the image of God, but it is God who gives us value, worth, and affirmation. And that value, that worth, that affirmation was marred by the fall of man and by sin. But God offers us redemption through Christ. And it is in Christ, not the world, that we are fully affirmed. And when we are affirmed in Christ, and when we receive this, then we realize our God-given purpose. And we begin to live as God's redemptive people. But you see, there's something really unique. We are individually unique, but lost apart from the objective reality of God. But when we are brought back into the gathering of God's people, we are given the Word of God. We are given a community that spurs us on, and that helps us to grow, to be the people that God wants us to be. And so if you can understand this, you can understand why Israel would return, why some faithful Israelites would return, because they knew that it was not about them. It was not about the individual life, which was more comfortable in Babylon. It was about being part of a greater story, a redemptive plan, a greater God, and a greater people. It was about family. It was about heritage. It was about their community. And so for some of you who come from more of an Eastern background, this speaks more readily to your understanding of family and value. But with that, I want to take you to Ezra chapter 3, and I want you to read with understanding now. Ezra chapter 3, verses 1 to 6. Ezra chapter 3, verses 1 to 6. In Ezra chapter 3, in verse 1, Ezra writes this, When the seventh month came, and the children of Israel were in the towns, the people gathered as one man to Jerusalem. Then arose Joshua, the son of Jehoshadak, with his fellow priests, and Zerubbabel, the son of Sheatel, with his kinsmen, and they built the altar of the God of Israel to offer burnt offerings on it, as it is written in the law of Moses, the man of the man of God. Verse 3, they set the altar in its place for fear was on them because of the people of the lands, and they offered burnt offerings on it to the Lord, burnt offerings morning and evening, and they kept the Feast of Booths as it is written and offered the daily burnt offerings by number according to rule as each day required. And then in verse 5, and after that, the regular burnt offerings, the offerings at the new moon and at the appointed feast of the Lord and the offerings of everyone who made a free will offering to the Lord. For from, from the first day of the seventh month, they began to offer burnt offerings to the Lord, but the foundation of the temple was not yet laid. So it's very clear what's happening here in this passage. They're basically doing two things. They've rebuilt the altar of worship so that they can come together and offer sacrifices. And the rest of the passage talks about Israel being committed to corporately come together as individuals coming together to continue offering various 
offerings. Even the celebration of the festivals involved offering and making offerings to the Lord. But there is a context that we need to begin with. And the context is one of opposition. What's happening is there's something motivating their continual worship. Here's what's motivating their worship is that they came back into the land. And as I mentioned earlier, there were already people inhabiting the land. And you can imagine that it is not very favorable. It wasn't, they, they were not happy that these refugees and these Israelites were coming back into the land. And so there was opposition and Israel was afraid. The Israelites who came back were afraid. But here's something different. Throughout his, Israel's history, they made a mistake. They've made mistakes. In times where they faced oppositions, there were times where they just faded into secular society and began to worship the foreign idols. Hey, if they're going to oppose you, why not join them and be more like them? Other times, they would turn and appeal to foreign nations like Egypt, Israel's enemy, and the enemies, the enemy of God's people throughout history, typologically in the Old Testament. And God wasn't pleased by that. And here, they could have appealed directly to Cyrus as their deliverer. But instead of crying out directly to the Persian emperor at this point, instead of going to a foreign nation, and instead of just giving in to secular opposition and worshiping idols, they said, hey, here's what we need to do. God needs to be with us, and we need to have a relationship with him, and we need to worship him and pray to him. But the only way that that's going to happen is that if our sins are atoned for, the only way that God is going to talk to us and minister to us and be with us is if sin is dealt with so that he can dwell with us, so that we can be with him. We need to worship, and we need to come together and do this as one man. And so if we were going to worship in the Old Testament, we need to build the altar. We need to make sacrifices, because sacrifice would satisfy the wrath of God, make atonement for our sin temporarily in the Old Testament, allow forgiveness to come down, and allow God to move with us, to be with us, and to relate to us. And they understood that that's why their number one priority was not to call for foreign aid or help or to call upon Cyrus. Their number one priority was to restore worship corporately. And they did this priority number one by rebuilding the altar where sacrifices could be offered. And this came with a risk. This came with a risk. If you notice in verse 1, it says that on the seventh month, they came together. So this is between September to October in our calendar. The children of Israel, you see that corporately, described as the children of God, they were in their towns, the towns that they returned, that they were inhabiting, and the people gathered as one man to Jerusalem. So they had come back. Now, when they leave their homes, they did not have ADT or security systems like we have today. Imagine leaving your home and knowing that the people who inhabited the land don't really like you. You're basically leaving your homes open to plunder, open to being robbed, open to vandalism. People could do whatever they want to your homes. And so therefore, they took a risk coming to Jerusalem to worship because that's how important it was. They could have just said, why can't we worship here in our homes? Now, it's very different in the New Testament. They could have said, why can't we just stay here? But they knew that they had to go to Jerusalem to set up the altar. And this leads us to point number one, which I alluded to. Point number one is that there are actually three things. There's three things that we see in this passage 
that was required for corporate worship in the Old Testament that carry over very nicely to the New Testament, only it carries over in Christ. And the first one is atonement for sin. As Christians, Jesus Christ makes atonement for our sin. But in the Old Testament, atonement came through substitutionary sacrifice. Every animal that they would put on that altar was a substitute. And by putting that animal, by putting that animal to death, the blood of that animal would symbolically represent death. And God would, would pour his wrath out and on that animal symbolically, and it would satisfy the wrath of God so that God's people could receive forgiveness and continue to relate to him. So that's the first thing we see is the atonement for sin. And that's why the altar will be built. We see in Genesis 12, 7 and Exodus 29, verse 43, the, that God told Israel, at the altar, there I will meet with my people Israel. At the altar, I will meet with my people. Because it's at the altar that sin is dealt with. So as a Christian, imagine, it's not written here, but imagine God saying, at the cross, I will meet you. At the cross, where the perfect sacrifice is made, I will meet you. At the cross, you will come to me. And so for you and me, we do this spiritually, not so much physically, but it is through the cross of Jesus Christ that we gather. And notice that verse in verse 3, that it tells us they, they were worshiping morning and evening. So that's really important because this is not just a one-time thing. This is not just, okay, God, we're back from exile. Thank you for bringing us back in. We're going to worship you once. It's a one-time celebration. We're going to have a party. Then we're going to go back and just live our own lives. No, 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 no. Corporate worship was a regular practice. And at this stage, it was daily. This is morning. They went to the altar and offered sacrifices. Evening, they offered sacrifice. Now, you and I can do this. We know that atonement has been made for us. But in the morning, we can pray and go to the cross and go to the Word of God. We can pray throughout the day. As you're going to see, they, they made free will offerings throughout the day. And in the evening, before we go to sleep, we thank God for His atonement through Jesus Christ, and we continue to relate to God. So we can see how the Old Testament gave us a shadow, an imperfect pattern that points towards Christ and the Christian life. So they offered daily burnt offerings. Look at verse 4. It says they offered daily burnt offerings. Burnt offerings refer to regular offerings. And we read in verse 5, it says, And after that, the regular burnt offerings, in addition, the offerings at the new moon and the appointed feast. Now, the new moon is not talking about the moon festival that you and I love to celebrate together where we, we eat moon cake. But this is talking about a new month. So when they say new moon, they mean every new month. So when you put this together, they have appointed feast. So if you translate this, it would be they worshipped and offered sacrifices to the Lord every morning, every evening, so daily, monthly, every new moon, regularly, right, um, all the time, and they celebrated during special occasions as well, like the, the various feasts. And then if you look at verse 5, you see that it says they continue the offerings of everyone who made a free will offering to the Lord from the first day of the seventh month they began to offer burnt offerings to the Lord, but the foundation of the temple of the Lord was not yet laid. That's verse 6. So, so that's really important. The temple's not yet built yet, but they did not need the temple to worship. They needed the altar, and they needed the, the rhythm of worshiping. What is a free will offering? The free will offering goes 
back to the Old Testament principle of of 10%, a tithe, 10% of your harvest and 10% of your wages you would give to the Lord. And we know that the Old Testament, the 10% was the starting point. And if they could give more, they would give a lot more on top of that. And so the 10%, well, the 10% is called a tithe. A free will offering is anything on top of the tithe. And so they were giving freely to the Lord. And we know that they were investing resources into this project of rebuilding the temple. And so these were sacrifices that were offered freely anytime throughout the day. And it was above the 10% mark of the tithe. So you saw how corporate worship, not just individual worship, but corporate worship became an, an integral part of their daily practice and their identity as the people of God. And so that's the first thing that they did was they, they, they needed to rebuild the altar to, to have their sins, their sins atoned for. Now, point number two is very quick. I just want to show you throughout the passage. Point number two is that they worshiped in obedience to God's word. So point number one was atonement for sin. That's an essential that carried over to the New Testament. Here's another Old Testament essential of corporate worship that carries to the New Testament, carries over, is obedience to God's word. Notice in the second part of verse 2, it says, they built the altar of God of Israel, of the God of Israel, to offer burnt offerings. How did they do it? As it is written in the law of Moses, the man of God. So they did it, not however they wanted to, or not what was the best way, or the most affordable way, or even the most lavish way. They did it how the Lord instructed them to in their scriptures. Verse 4, and they kept the Feast of Booths at, as it is written. So why did they keep the Feast of the Booths or the Feast of Tabernacles or the, or the Feast, the Festival of Ingatherings, the different ways this feast is described throughout the, the, New, the Old Testament? Why? As it is written, the way it was written, and because Moses had instructed them to do so, and, and God had instructed them to do so. And then it says in verse 4, and offer daily burnt offerings by number according to the rule. What rule? According to the word of God, right? And then in verse 5, at towards the end of verse 5, and it says, after that, the regular burnt offerings and offerings at the new moon and at all the appointed feast of the Lord. So wherever the Lord had appointed for them. So you can see how, how instead of following the world, they were strictly sticking to the word of God. Now, we're going to say a lot more about the Word of God when we get to Ezra chapter 7. So that's all I want to say about point number two is, is that one, atonement for sin was a center of their worship, but obedience to God's Word guided their corporate worship. And for you and I as Christians, God's Word regulates our worship and gives us order. God's Word gives us instructions. God's Word is actually the center of our worship in the sense of when we sing songs, we are singing songs that reflect the character of God and the teaching of God throughout the Bible. And as we sit under the teaching of God's Word, we learn more about God's character, we learn stories about God's people, and we learn how God is instructing us today as New Testament Christians how to live for Him. So the obedience to, obedience to the Word of God is central to our corporate identity as people of God. And that's what I mean. Uniquely, we are individuals. God created all of us with unique personalities. And that is really a blessing. That means we're not robots. We are all uniquely different. But there's something objective about all of us, is that, is that God says, you are all different, but what's going to unify you and what's going to bring us together is His Word. Is that with His Word, He orders us together in a sense where we we come to him and we understand 
that we are uniquely unified and we are alike in terms of being his people united under his scriptures and his gospel and his cross. So that's obedience to the word of God. That's a quick point. Now, point number three, the third thing. So we saw atonement for sin, obedience to God's word. But the third thing that united and united Israel and was central and essential to their corporate identity was celebration. They celebrated these festivals and they did this annually. We know that they celebrated Passover. They celebrated various feasts, but this one in particular is the Feast of Booths. So point number three is celebration through corporate worship. I want you to notice, though, that they didn't celebrate in their own homes. Isn't that very interesting? That throughout the Old Testament, you see these pilgrimages. They were pilgrim people. That that God told Abraham, Abraham, leave, or Abram, leave your homeland, and I'm going to bring you to a promised land. The, the forefather of our faith and the forefather of of Israel was a sojourner. He was a person who left home, a refugee, a person who left home, an immigrant, someone who left home and went to a foreign land because God called him to, right? So Abraham was a pilgrim person. And then you can read throughout the, the, the Pentateuch and, and how Israel had to go through a pilgrim pilgrimage. And then you look in Exodus where, where God's like, okay, I'm going to bring my people into into Egyptian slavery. I'm going to allow that to happen. And I'm going to bring them out. I'm going to bring them back. And when he brings them back out of slavery, they're, they're wandering. They're wandering through the wilderness. They're going to the promised land. They are never really at home, right? And even when they get into the promised land, they have to face the foreign enemies. And then they're learning what it means to battle the enemies and, and, and to battle secularism and and idolatry and temptation and, and and intermarriage. And you see all of that throughout the Old Testament that really in the Old Testament, God's people are a pilgrim people. And so it's no wonder that each year they have these pilgrimages where they travel to Jerusalem to gather together. So I want you to notice that, that there is something special in the Old Testament where God says, I want you to come together in one place to worship me. I want to see the unity, the corporate expression of God's people coming to Jerusalem. And you will be a pilgrim people. And when you go back, you bring the spirit of that unity and the spirit of the Lord back with you. And now as New Testament Christians, it's different because we have Jesus living in our hearts. We don't all go to Jerusalem. We gather in local churches, in various communities, as expressions of our unity and our, and our unison as God's people. And yes, we have daily devotions. Yes, we worship in our home. But there's a reason why God calls us to be members of churches. There is a corporate identity. There's something that happens transformatively, transformatively in a corporate worship service. Uniquely, when you're surrounded by people who are worshiping the same God, singing together, sitting on the God's word, and then spurring each other on. There's something happens in our small groups. There's something happening in our Sunday school classes. There's something happening, special ha special happening as we go through life together, as we encourage each other, as we care for each other when we're sick or when we're discouraged. There's something transformative that God does when we are together that does not happen when we're separate. Now, that doesn't mean that we, once again, that we don't worship when we're separate as individuals, but there's something special about our corporate identity. And so I want you to see that. Notice verse 4, and I'm going to focus on this point on the festival or the Feast of Booths. They celebrated the Feast of Booths, also known as the Feast of Tabernacles. 
Now, those of you who know me, you know that I have some speech impediments. So rather than saying Fisa Boofs, boofs, because I have a hard time with pronouncing the TH, interesting, because my sister is a speech pathologist and she's given me some exercises. I'm going to keep saying Feast of Tabernacles because that's what it's also called, okay? So Feast of Tabernacles, where this was a celebration where Israel lived in tabernacles for seven days. So when they celebrated this, they would live in tents, right, or tabernacles for seven days to remind them of how God sustained their ancestors after the Exodus. And the, and this feast involved originally, it would happen around the time towards the end of the harvest where all of the first fruits would come in and all of the produce would come in. And so this was a time where, where, where they would celebrate the harvest and say, look how God provided for us. God has provided for us now and God has provided for our people. And, and right away when you come together to celebrate that, it brings you back to the Exodus. You remember that you are a people that God has delivered. God has delivered you. And when your ancestors were in the wilderness, God sustained them. God provided for them. And God gave them tents to live in. God provided manna. God provided his presence. And so when you celebrate Passover, you celebrate the God who delivers you. When you celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles, you, you celebrate the God who sustains you. You translate this over to the New Testament. There is a God who delivered us from spiritual slavery, and there is a God who sustains our, our, our faith in Christ and the Holy Spirit. And when we do that, we celebrate together, remembering that we are God's delivered people, we are God's sustained people, we are God's gathered people. And so there's a corporate identity here. And so they celebrated to, together that God sustained their ancestors and God sustained them. And it's interesting here that Israel has come back from exile. And this is like a new exodus. This is a second exodus, if you will, where a remnant of God's people have left Babylon and come back into Jerusalem as a, as a new exodus. And now they're celebrating, once again, the Feast of Booth. They celebrate the God who delivered them. They celebrate the God who is going to sustain them. You can read more about the Feast of Booths in Exodus 23, Leviticus 23, Deuteronomy 16, and Numbers 29. I will not go into that today. But all of us, as Christians now, we experience a spiritual type of exodus. A spiritual exodus where the Lord redeems us, not from physical slavery, but spiritual slavery. And you might not believe me, beloved, but as Gentile believers, as New Testament Christians, we too will celebrate this Feast of Tabernacles. Or I'm going to try to say it, the Feast of Booths, the Feast of Tabernacles, the Feast of the Ingathering is what it's called in Exodus 23, is the, the celebration of the ingathering, right? And so if you take your Bibles, and I'll have it up on the screen for you, but if you can take your Bibles and look at Zechariah chapter 14, verse 16, where the context is talking about the day of the Lord in the future, and the Feast of Tabernacles, the Feast of Booths, is used symbolically and applied to all of us, the people who worship Christ from the nations. I want you to see in Zechariah 14, 16, the prophet Zechariah is a contemporary. He's ministering at the same time as Ezra and Nehemiah. He is a post-exilic prophet, and he speaks symbolically. And He says, then everyone, on the day of the Lord, then everyone, who survives of all the nations that have come against Jerusalem shall go up 
year after year to worship the king, the Lord of hosts, to keep the feast of booths. So let me break that down for you. Everyone who survives of all the nations, everyone who survives from all of the Gentile nations, from the people who have come up against Jerusalem. So in the end times, we know that people are going to come up against God's people. They're going to come up against the Messiah, going to come up against Jerusalem. But there are people from all nations who are not part of that rebellion. These are the people of God. These are Christians, Jews and Gentiles who believe in Israel's Messiah. And they shall symbolically come up year after year to worship the Messiah, the King, Jesus, the Lord of hosts. And we will keep the same Feast of Booths. We will celebrate the God who delivered us spiritually and the God who sustains us. And we will worship Christ. And so this is beautiful that it's figuratively speaking of the ingathering of God's people. So what we see here is our corporate identity. Beloved, we are more united with Israel than we think. In the Old Testament, Israel is a corporate people of God. In the New Testament, it becomes Israel plus the nations that worship him. Jews and Gentiles together, the one redemptive people of God, the one people of God that worship the Messiah. It is a corporate ingathering, meaning if you take this passage in context, God, Feast of Booth, celebrating the harvest, right? Feast of Tabernacles, celebrating the, the first fruits and the, and the ingathering, God is gathering. This is about missions. God is gathering people from all nations, Jews and Gentiles, into Christ, where we will all symbolically celebrate this feast. And again, I will end with verse 6, that the foundation of the temple was not yet laid, and this tells us that they did not need the temple to worship God and to be his people. They're going to have the temple, but eventually in AD 70, the temple, this second temple would fall. And Jesus, being the true and better temple, is how we gather and how we worship. The big idea for this morning's message is Christ atones for our sin, enables our obedience, and gathers us for corporate worship. It is Christ who offers the perfect atonement. He atones for our sins, not the animal sacrifices. He enables our obedience to the law, and he enables our obedience to God's word by, by making that sacrifice possible for us. And he gathers us. He is the person that calls us from all nations to celebrate the Feast of Booths sim symbolically. He gathers us for corporate worship. So Christ atones for our sin, enables our obedience, and gathers us for corporate worship. The only application I have for you is in light of how we are different from the Israelites, especially in light of this quarantine. In light of this quarantine, we know that California this week has provided guidelines for churches to reopen in a modified and restricted form, and our church is working hard on reopening plans for a much smaller and a, and a restricted but, but necessary necessary restrictions, a, a, one where a, a restricted worship service where we have guidelines and we have safety measures, and we know that that's going to just be for a small percentage of you who do feel comfortable coming back in the next few months or so whenever we can get these safety protocols down, but we're working hard to do that. But we also know that there will be many of you who, for good reason, will be worshiping at home, and you'll be waiting until you're ready 
uh, either because you're susceptible or you're close to family members, you're caring for elderly, or you have young children, etc. So all that to say, we know that we, we will be a church that will both be worshiping online and we will have some form of physical worship, God willing, in the coming months. But all of that to say is that we can worship. And so if you're worshiping here, we pray that that even though we're limited and wearing face masks and having spacing, that we would continue to worship in the Spirit knowing that one day God will bring us together soon and where we can experience the corporate identity. But for the rest of you who will continue to worship by necessity at home, I want to encourage you. I want to encourage you to continue to gather together in your small groups. Even on Sunday morning when you're watching the sermon, Maybe get onto a Google meeting or get onto a Zoom call together. And you can actually watch in the video different families singing together in their homes, listening to the sermon. You can see parents trying to, trying to pull their kids together and struggling and, and all of that. But that's part of our lives. We must continue to stay together through our small groups. And if you're not part of a small group, I know the English congregation is going to put out information for how you can join. Stay connected by caring for each other. Even if we can't be at, at 1555 Fairway Drive, we can continue to practice the corporate identity because that is so important. Yes, faith is individual. Yes, we all must make an individual profession of faith and we all must have a personal devotional life of Jesus Christ as his disciples. But just as important is our identity and our union as God's family and God's people. And so our church is going to do whatever we can to help you to continue to maintain those relationships online through your groups when uh, you know in the coming months, months, because we know that we won't be able to gather as a full church for some time, uh, and so keep you know we will keep you posted. We will continue to communicate with you. We love you more than you know. Continue to pray for us as a church. Let me pray for us, Father. We come before you today, and we miss our church. We miss the people of God. We, we're thankful for the online ministries. We're thankful, Lord, for your grace. We're thankful for our, our small group leaders and all of our volunteers. We're thankful for the state of California that we're coming to a point where we can begin to work on an imperfect version of regathering again. We want to pray for our task force and our leaders as we begin to try to uphold some of these safety guidelines and protocols and try to run some tests and try to make this happen. We know, Lord, that our physical gathering won't be what we wanted, and, and it will be something that's very small and restricted, but we know this is necessary to ensure the safety of all of our members and those who would come worship with us. We pray, Lord, that through those times, we would be able to experience your joy and to glorify you as best as possible when that day comes. But we want to continue to pray for everyone who will be worshiping at home. We want to pray that, that people would not be discouraged, but they would be encouraged. Let them know that their pastors and God is not disappointed with them, is not discouraged by them, that we are, we are not discouraged or disappointed by those of you who are at home. We understand and we are with you and we want to serve you. And we know that this is going to make us stronger. We know the day that when you bring us back together, Lord, that you are going to make us stronger, sing louder with more gratitude and love for each other. So Father, I pray, Lord, that that day would come. We pray for a vaccine. We pray for healing, but until that day comes, we pray that you would sustain us both, both individually and corporately as an expression of the people of God in the name and in the power of Jesus Christ. It's in that name that we pray. 
Amen. We love you. Have a blessed Sunday.